Podcast where liberty is our mission. Today is uh, Saturday, September thirteenth, two thousand fourteen. This is podcast number three hundred eighty-two. My name is Ben Stone, and with me, with no further ado, is my friend Bill Bupert from Zero Gov. Bill, welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast. It's an honor as always, Ben. Thanks. Uh, today we're going to be talking about self-defense, and we're going to be exploring that as much as we can within the limits of time that we have. And we're also going to be talking about passivism. And since I'm not an actual pacifist, uh, I do. I'm I'm going to try to avoid, you know, straw man and and the different uh, fallacies that go along with trying to make an argument. Uh, about something that you're not a supporter of. And, you know, if we were really fair and balanced, if there is such a thing, we would get a an actual pacifist on with us. But uh, having said that, I'm going to try my best to not produce any uh, pacifist straw men or, or fallacies. But, uh, Bill, um, when it comes to self-defense, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can look at it. And a lot of, uh, I was on Michael Dean's show, uh, Freedom Fiends just a little while ago, and we were talking about conservatives. And one of the things that conservatives will always say to you is, well, I would rather fight them over there than have to fight them here at home. And that it's kind of using self-defense as an excuse to go into somebody else's yard and beat the crap out of them. Well, you know what? It's it's pre- it's preemptive violence, and it defies all logic because they act as if they can't purchase airline tickets or they can't smuggle through clandestine or covert means individuals, even up to platoon or company strength, in the country as porous as the borders are. Yeah, and it also assumes that our that the borders of the United States are somehow secure or could be secured. I'm not sure. You know, outside of an, a complete military lockdown, I'm not sure. And even then, I don't believe that the borders could be, you know, secured. Well, I would suggest that absent warfare, both conservatives, paleoconservatives and neoconservatives, maybe paleoconservatives less so, would have a whole lot less definition and flesh to the body of their philosophy, if that were the case. Yeah. Because they really define themselves by martial conflict. Especially the neoconservatives, who, who I like to say, practice national socialism at home, international communism abroad, and have first fealty to a nation off of our shores. Yeah, that's a really good statement. I like that. Um, say that one more time. They, they practice national socialism at home, international communism abroad, and have their primary fealty to a nation off of the shores of the U.S., which is Israel. Yeah, that's something to really think about. Because that, that is what they do. It, national socialism 
is essentially the government that we have in the United States right now. It's, it's exactly, you know, Mussolini back in the 30s before the uh, Second World War, or like you like to call it, the war to save Joseph Stalin. <laughs> before that war, Mussolini looked at the U.S. and looked at the way that FDR was handling the Great Depression and and he approved of that. He thought that's really great. Those guys are doing it right there in America. Absolutely. You know, I think it's a whole nother show for us to discuss. We may get a little off track, Ben, to discuss <laughs> um, Red DR, my affectionate term for uh, for for FDR, the war to save Joseph Stalin. Uh, what warfare has done to America in the 20th century in transforming it from what was really Sort of a liberal nation, and I use liberal in the in the, in the 18th and 19th century sense. Right. Sort of a liberal nation into this warfare welfare state monstrosity that we have now. But I would also suggest we could go back to the Lincolnian Project during the War of Northern Aggression. We could go back to the the approval of the Constitution, 1791, and all the the path stones to this monstrous entity that we all labor under today. All the path stones were there if we look in hindsight. Um, now, if you were going to define the word uh, self-defense or the phrase self-defense, I guess it's a word if you hyphenate it. Huh? But if you were going to define what is self-defense and where do you draw the line on self-defense, where does it become you know, a, an aggressive action, how would you uh, articulate that? You know, I've, I've always – while I'm not a Christian, Ben, I have terrific respect – for Christian apologetics, especially C.S. Lewis and such. Mm -hmm. And I have terrific respect for the Ten Commandments because like the categorical imperative and like some aspects of Stoicism, of which I am a Sto practicing Stoic, and, and uh, Bushido and things like that, you can draw from these, these philosophical and religious baselines great guidelines for living. And it's hard to beat the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill, otherwise you couldn't defend yourself. So from the Ten Commandments, I drew a very simple sentence that provides me the philosophical base, baseline to define what you're asking me, which is that murder begins where self-defense ends. I think that's very true. Uh, and let me just clarify something on for anyone listening who, sure. who uh, doesn't like uh, the adjusting of that word kill into murder. Um, you know, I've done quite a bit of research in ancient Hebrew. I, I, that was one of the things that I was uh, specializing in when I was uh, in theology school. Not necessarily the Hebrew language itself, although I, I attempted to learn some of that. But mostly what I was trying to learn was the actual intent of the original uh, text that, you know, that, it, that the Bible comes from. And I was very often I would be uh, upset with modern translations of the bible and modern interpretations but if you actually do and these and the tools are available we have very old versions of the old testament and we have uh, a lot of examples of ancient hebrew writing and so there are uh, there are all kinds of tools available to a, a a person who wants to investigate the the terminology used in the oldest versions of the bible and it actually says in Hebrew, thou shalt not murder. It does not say thou shalt not kill, because it would be silly to say thou shalt not kill, and a few chapters later say burn witch. So, uh, you or know, where Jesus says, trade your cloak for a sword. 
And yeah, I'm paraphrasing what e- I say. E- exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think, and a lot of people, let's use Jesus for an example too. A lot of people say, well, Jesus was a pacifist, therefore I should be a pacifist. That's good enough for me. I'm not going to take it any further. But the, the fact is that Jesus was not a pacifist. A pacifist does not sit down and casually braid a whip and then calmly walk into a, a large religious area where they're, you know, exchanging money, which was what was happening at the temple, and knock over the tables and beat the priests with whips. A, a pacifist does not do that, and Jesus did that. A pacifist does not tell his followers that the day will come when you will have to sell your cloak and buy a sword. And Jesus told his followers that. So I would reject the idea that Jesus was a pacifist. Uh, if you believe what the Bible says, you know, that's that's one caveat that has to be put in. If you actually believe what the Bible says, then you have to reject the idea that Jesus was a pacifist. If you don't believe the words that are in the Bible, then you can pretty much make up however whatever personality you want to give to Jesus. But if you actually say that you believe the words in the Bible, then you have to believe the words in the Bible where Jesus, you know, beat the crap out of a bunch of money changers. Yeah, and the Jews use the term... Retzak in the, in the Hebrew language. Mm-hmm. And what they were concerned with was what something, something called blood guilt, which is one word in the Torah. And what blood guilt is, is guilt of wrongfully shedding blood. It's guilt of wrongfully causing death or shedding blood. And what it means is, did you kill in self-defense or did you kill in a fashion that was maybe serving your own avarice or malicious intentions? Much like what the state does on a daily basis. So, you you know, it's interesting here too, Ben, because look at this. What what we're discussing here is that the Torah contains, maybe in in isolated instances, some of the rudiments of what makes libertarian a philosophically and morally superior framework of living. Are you tired of your taxes funding endless occupations around the world? Antiwar.com is run by people who understand that wars abroad become wars at home, wars on our freedoms. Antiwar.com is dedicated to bringing you the latest in news, views, interviews, and reviews from the top movers and shakers in the anti-occupation movement. Antiwar.com has it all, from thorough foreign policy analysis to interviews with whistleblowers who used to run the military-industrial complex. Antiwar, pro-free market. That's Antiwar.com. Let me kind of go off on a side tangent here just for a second. (laughs) That's predictable. Sure. sure. Um, Yes, it is. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we have a scenario where a guy is running at you with, uh, uh, you know, with with a machete. He's running directly at you with a machete, and you realize that his intent is clear. There's no question. There's no fuzzy zone. He has announced his intentions to chop your arms off, and now he's running at you with a machete. And so you uh, wait until he's in that that sweet zone that you're very comfortable with, and when he hits that range. You, uh, you know, uh, how is it you put it? You, uh, uh, you, you calm him. What what is the phrase that you use for putting someone uh, horizontal? Oh, you, they, they assume room temperature. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The ambient, or in this case, if you're outside the ambient temperature, you, you assist him in that process with uh, a few ounces of lead. As long as, and you, you've outlined this threat, opportunity and capability and intent. Right. Are clear. Yeah. Then it makes sense because, see, we got to be careful using these arguments too, Ben, because those in your audience who are listening who either aren't familiar with libertarian and abolitionist ethics and maybe status, they'll say, well, what's going to happen if 
a man has a flower garden or a vegetable garden, a six-year-old child trespasses on his property, comes into his garden, starts eating his stuff, does he have the right to blow that child away? In my mind, no. Now, do I have the right to ask the child to leave? Of course I do. Do I have the right to do use all means at my disposal to get the child or the adult out of my garden? I do, but I think it's it's a case-by-case basis on whether you can kill that person or even maim them because threat, opportunity, and capability certainly aren't there. Certainly for a six-year-old girl, threat, opportunity, and capability probably wouldn't be in the mix unless she had a gun in her hand. But then again, if a six-year-old girl has a gun in her hand and threatens it with threatens you with it, that's a different story and that's a different discussion. But this is how the status try to take down the meta-libertarian argument is they say, you know, there's a few bad people out there. And because of those bad people, and they don't say this, but you and I observe this, mm-hmm. because there's a few bad people out there, I want the worst people put in charge of every aspect of my life to keep those bad people from doing me harm. And that is the logic of the state. Talk about a Pyrrhic victory. Yes, yeah. I agree. I agree. Now, so we have that scenario, and we both agree that that is a very real threat, and the person is capable, and he is in the... With the the, machete. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you do what you have to do before he actually harms you, and that's been perfectly fine. Now, we'll switch it slightly, and he's going towards someone else, a family member or perhaps Mm -hmm. just an innocent person um, who's, who's there, and you know the circumstance, so there's no question that... You know, uh, I don't know, maybe person A has hired someone else to kill person B. So person A is person B is now trying to commit self-defense by killing this guy before he kills him. You you could convolute it in any way. But uh, but for this scenario, you know, all the uh, all the circumstances involved and the guy is not going to kill you, but he is going to kill this other innocent person who's there expecting you to help because you are uh, more fit at it than than they are. So in in my terms, I would, you know, as, as, as long as these conditions are met, I would go ahead and pop the guy. Now, I have to I have to be cautious here. And, and I've taken a, a whole lot of weapons courses at at Gunsight Thunder Ranch, Farms Academy of Seattle, different places like that. And I remember one instance where they were they were they, they would stage these scenarios. And one of the scenarios was a convenience store. In which Bill or Ben walk into the store, you and I are fully armed as we are all the time. We walk into the store and there's a man holding a gun to the cashier's head behind the counter. And there's a man casually reading a magazine in the back. What do we do? Now, several of the instructors said, what you do is you turn around and you walk away. And several of the students said, well, why would you do that? And they said, You've got to understand the presumption of information in situations like this. How do you know that the cashier isn't the one holding the gun on the person behind the counter at the register who is a criminal and that the man in the back reading a magazine is an accomplice of the thief? You you don't know because you have insufficient information. Now, you do have threat, opportunity, and capability, but what you don't have is solid knowledge and context of the circumstances before you when you're about to possibly take a life. So that's 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 the point that I would make that would make me hesitate. Yeah. 
Um, but if you knew everything, let's say it's a family member, you're at home, and the invader comes in, uh, and you've uh, and I should have said that I would give a command for him to stop before I actually popped him. I would I would make some kind of indication that I'm about to shoot him before I actually shot him. Uh, well, in many cases, yeah, if I have the time. You know, again, all this is so contextual, Ben. And again, though, this is a quagmire that statists love for libertarians to get involved in as far as discussion. Yeah. Because we're almost losing traction of the metadata here. Mm -hmm. And the metadata is that the Second Amendment and the Ninth Amendment and and even before the Constitution, you go to English common law. I'll bet West and East, you can look at the law books back then. Self-defense is what Thomas Jefferson would call inalienable. Right. It is something that that cannot be taken away from me. So let's suppose we hear all this noise about, well, the Second Amendment protects your right to self-defense. I would say that the Second Amendment doesn't protect squat because of the 1934 NFA, the 1968 GCA, the 1986 McClure-Volkmer Act, the Firearm Owners Protection Act, 1989 Cosmetically Offensive Weapons Ban by Bush 1. I mean, go on and on and on, all clear violations of the Second Amendment. Yet the Second Amendment is supposed to protect me from big government. I know that's that, that that's a that's a false issue. That that's impossible. But the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee my self-defense. All the Second Amendment does is enunciate, imprint, and codify what is my inalienable right that can't be taken away from me through legislation, right? Or through uh, the, the, this tacit consent business that we have in modern society, where well, you've got to obey the, uh, the speeding laws and stuff like that because there's implied consent. Implied consent is another show that you and I need to do, which is one of the great evils of how the state maintains its talons and tentacles uh, of so many of the Boboisi in America. Yeah. Um, how about in the direction of, uh, of revenge? Uh, I've said quite a few times that revenge should be controlled, but, but I don't condemn revenge. So, for instance, uh, and there should be limitations on re- revenge. Society can develop that on their own without government. But um, let's say that someone has, you know, murdered your child, and you know all the circumstances, and you know that it was that your child was the victim, and and not some other weird circumstance. Uh, I would go after the person. Uh, what, what's your feelings on that? It's so interesting that you bring that up because if you go to da- to um David Friedman's stuff, Milton Friedman's son, who mm-hmm. was far better when it came to liberty and freedom than his father, oh, yeah. Milton Friedman, who's just a, a disaster across the board as far as I'm concerned as being a, a liberty entrepreneur and, yeah. and philosophical. He's very uh, inconsistent. Godhead. Oh, yeah. extraordinarily so. But the Icelandic had, had – uh, and the Vikings had geld considerations when it came to revenge where if your family was wronged, it would be brought before a higher tribunal or whatever the case may be. And they would dictate what you could do, but they had only so much ability to stop you from doing what you wish to do. Mm-hmm. I think it was Dane Geld. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. If your yeah. audience wants to look it up. So I certainly think that's right. And, and it brings up a, a much larger point. You know that I have this almost visceral despising of the cockroach nation that we live in now and right. the way the police quite literally get away with murder on a daily basis. What I wonder is this, and you and I have talked by the fireside about this, Ben. So all of us men who are more prone to constructive aggression, I would hope, than women are, I'll bet 
there are tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of families out there where you have male cousins, husbands, brothers, uh, sons, fathers, grandfathers, whatever the case may be, who have a female member in their family who has been mauled or worse yet, murdered by the police. And I wonder in my mind, I know what a man should do in that case. And it does harken back to Dane Geld, mm -hmm. but I don't see that happening. And I, do, I think that since we don't live in a free country, and you and I both know that this podcast, as most everything we do in the electronic ether in America, spelled with a K, mm -hmm. is a postcard to the NSA, there are a lot of prescriptions on language whereby you and I can go to jail for threatening somebody, mm -hmm. but a cockroach does that on a daily basis as part of his job code, Yeah, threatening people. I mean, that's what they do. It's much like... Private terrorism is illegal, but the wholesale terrorism that spells what the government does on a daily basis, every government, because they must practice politically motivated violence against noncombatants and innocents to exist, including violating the Ten Commandments every day. They, they've got to do those things to maintain their existence as government. But it's just that it should be an interesting, unanswered question on the show for your audience to reflect on what would happen if either the government or cockroach nation – savaged one of one of the female members of your nuclear family or generational family what is the right thing to do in that and I, and i think we don't have to answer that question on the air right right um you know i think and i've said this before i i think well first off um the disclaimer uh we we've talked enough that i'm pretty comfortable saying that you and i agree a lot about uh, uh, mental health uh, issues and, you know, the use of medication and psychoanalysis and so forth to, uh, to, to say what is and what isn't certain types of mental health and what is. It's a state control mechanism, and you and I both suffer from oppositional defiant disorder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they'd met us if they could, you know. They could. <laughs> they could and they would, yes. Um but uh, so so without going in that direction and trying to say that everything is mommy's fault and everything is daddy's fault or everything is, you know, uh, needs to be drugged or everything needs to be, uh, you know, analyzed and we need to lay on the couch for hours every week without going in that direction. I have contested for a long time that the inability of the average human being in America to uh, to find revenge, to find true justice in in any kind of a situation, you know, true justice is eliminated within the the confines of what is now called America. Um, if you are wronged in some way and you you seek justice by going to the police, they're not going to provide you any form of justice. And if for some strange reason the person who who harmed you actually does get arrested that's not going to bring justice and if they get if they go on trial it's not going to bring justice and if they're thrown in jail it's not going to bring justice justice in its truest sense can only be established by the person who is harmed and that has to involve some kind of avenging of of the damage that took place and i think that deep inside the human mind when we are wronged and then we don't have the opportunity to be avenged properly. I think something in there stings to the point of where it fogs the thinking on other things. 
So when this happens on a daily basis and it happens over and over and over and it happens on a societal basis and it happens on a generational basis and it happens based on your color or your, your, you know, your gender or it happens based on what you look like or, or your wealth level and this happens constantly to 350 million people, I think it breaks something in their brain that, that, uh, sometimes it affects other parts of their life as well. Um, what, what are your thoughts on all that rambling now, about vengeance? No, I, I, I agree with you completely that vengeance has been taken out of the private equity equation entirely, as has most human interaction in the United States, if not entirely in the West. I, I can't really speak to the East because it's, it's not the milieu that I, that, that I speak to, read about, and I don't speak the languages, so I'm going to confine my observations to the West. Look, America is a, is a curious amalgam of the Milgram-Stanford experiment harnessed to the Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and we're seeing again and again where people are, are quite literally allowing themselves to be led to the proverbial slaughter, as it were, because nothing the government does right now is, is either moral, virtuous, or going to guarantee that our sons and daughters or our unborn children and progeny in the future are going to have a better future, which I think is a, a, a primal investment we all want to make as fathers and husbands, for instance, if not, you know, most people, but they're not aligned with that. You know, it, it, I just wrote the statist quo, breaking bad and worse about secession because yeah, I read it's about that. Scotland. That's really good, by the way. I read that today. Well, thank you. And, and what I find really interesting is that when you consider self-defense, you must consider secession because secession is a form of self-defense. Now, there's, there's a variety of kinds of secession. There's the kind of moderate atomistic secession that Ben Stone, Michael Dean, Bill Bupert, Jeff Tucker, and all the rest in the, uh, the abolitionist liberty universe have taken upon themselves where they say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to agree with the state. I'm going to obey for now, but I'm not going to agree with them on the fundamentals. I'm not going to agree on the, agree with them on their moral arguments. As a matter of fact, I'm going to posit that they are an immoral monster against whom I don't have the strength to fight and prevail right now. Well, guess what secession is? Secession is when that culminating point of fighting and prevailing looks like a probability instead of a possibility, and that's when people move. And as I've stated, you're a historian just like I am. Mm -hmm. Secession is not the exception. It is the rule. Of, of, of Western nation state building, nation state destruction, whatever the case may be. And, and, you know, it's been driven into the heads of Americans and a lot of people in the West that well, you can't secede from the state you're a member of unless you get their permission. So what you're telling me is that if I'm in an abusive, almost homicidal relationship with a psychopathic, sociopathic, uh, uh, person or entity, and all I want to do is get out of that relationship. What you're telling me is that if I'm abused as a husband or a wife, when I call the police, the police will come through the door without knocking, by the way. They will savage me, ravage me, maim me or kill me, depending on my level of resistance. And then they'll put their hands against my chest. They'll push me and they'll put their index finger in my, my, my face and they'll say, this guy may be abusing you, but you don't have the right to do anything about it. And you don't have the right to leave this house. Any questions? That's where we are. 
That's exactly where we are. Uh, the U.S. government, the and the people um, obeying the U.S. government that we refer to, you know, their employees and their representatives and everything, they're doing exactly that. They're saying to us on a regular basis that we have to endure the abuse and and continue taking it simply because they they uh, they own us and they're going to continue to abuse us. Watch Larkin Rose's The Jones Plantation for those in your audience who are skeptical of their ownership of you and I. You know, it's it's one of the I wouldn't say Larkin's the reason, but Larkin really illuminates the question for me. I'm an abolitionist because I think it is the superior moral position and virtuous position to be opposed to the ownership of other human beings. Yeah, uh, Larkin's uh, uh, the plantation one by, by Larkin is particularly good. And it's it's also really well produced, you know. He yes, got a, a good yes, voice over work on he it did. and yeah. it's just really good work. It's it's brilliant guerrilla warfare yeah. when you think about it. It really is. And and in the sense of, of a non kinetic warfare, an information operations perspective, mm. he's got it down pat. Speaking of guerrilla warfare, uh what what we're kind of or what I was kind of building up to here is uh now we've already established some levels of self of self defense that we are perfectly comfortable with. We're even we even comfortable with some type of uh, um, preventive self defense, and we're comfortable with a certain degree, although it has to be controlled, but a certain degree of uh, revenge or vengeance. And so that takes us into the realm of uh, uh, unconventional warfare, which by chance happens to be your one of your expertises. <laughs> It is indeed. Uh, as a student, and, and I have lectured and instructed upon it and things like that, I, you know, like, like all slices of inquiry that, that human beings take on, I learn new stuff every day as I continue to build up my, my knowledge base and things on that. And what we have to ask our, one of the primary questions we have to ask ourselves, especially as the one to three percent of libertarians that you and I are, Ben, as, uh, anarchists and abolitionists, is are you violating the nap or zap number one if you if you participate mm-hmm. in guerrilla activities unconventional warfare activities or participate in activities that lead to secession or potentially lead to secession are you violating the nap or zap by doing so because what you find for instance with the free state project and I'll probably get in trouble with the free state project for saying this you'll notice that Cantwell who I don't consider to be a gentleman whatsoever but brings up some interesting points Cantwell talked about when is it time to shoot shoot the police. He was riffing off of what Larkin Rose wrote about in, in a much better fashion, I think. When Larkin and maybe you can post this in the show notes for this, if you find Larkin Rose's original article on that very thing about when is it time to shoot the police. Mm-hmm. What what the Free State Project was saying is they were saying basically, and this is not the Free State Project per se, but the committee that runs the Free State Project, we are assuming, and I'll, I'll stand corrected if need be, we are assuming a pacifist stance in which we think that no defensive violence whatsoever is ever called upon for free people to either remain free or become free. Now, if you think I misinterpreted, you were there at uh, the uh, at the festivities at Porkfest. So if you think I misinterpreted, I'll stand corrected. You know, uh, something Barack Obama said the other day reminded me of this in this exact situation uh, in dealing with the, the mess in uh, Ferguson, um, Missouri, that was going on. Barack Obama came on in television, you know, on all the channels, and he said, 
that there's never a justification to, re- I think he even said resist a police or use violence against a police or something like that. And, um, and then he goes on to say, and there's never a situation where a police should use too much violence on a, on a human. I mean, on a citizen. And, and I thought, you know, it's right there in his words. This double standard that he's creating is, is, and I, and I'm not quoting him perfectly exact, but if you go back and actually listen to the recording of it, you'll see what I mean. His exact words, uh, were to basically state that you should never fight the police and they should usually be nice to you. I mean, that's basically what he was saying. And it's, it's just silliness. It's sheer silliness. You know, I, I, I tweet Twitter, whatever you call it when you do that act. I have a Twitter account <laughs> called zero space gov. And I must, every morning I get up and I find the last 24 hours of cockroach brutality, mayhem, violence, and killing that's going on. And I post it. It, it astonishes me the amount of violence visited on a daily basis on human beings in this tax jurisdiction. And there was even an article, I think it was in the New York Times, and I'll try to find it so you can put it in your show notes, Ben, if you like, where this cop who was also a professor of homeland security at a Colorado university, he was going so far as saying, hey, you better listen to me or you're going to suffer the consequences. And I think to myself, I, it, I'd be hard-pressed to find something more un-American or un-libertarian than that very statement. I mean, they tried to weaponize it in 1798 with the Alien and Seditions Act, but it goes beyond upholding and enforcing all these ridiculous laws that we suffer. But it goes to the point of where if you have contempt for the authority, that will become a crime in and of itself. And, And by the way, I use that term crime loosely because when you examine all the malum prohibitum crime that we have in the U.S., I've come to the conclusion that 90% of it is pre-crime and nothing more. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. It's just pre-crime. It's creepy. Philip K. Dick would be proud. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 what, what are your thoughts, Ben, on – if, if one participates in secession or participates in unconventional warfare or guerrilla warfare, is there a time when you are not in violation of Rothbardian non-aggression principles by doing so? Um, you know, it's going to be real tricky, uh, in any kind of a situation. If you're any time that you're trying to draw a picture of any kind of war and then, uh, and then say these aspects are moral and justifiable and these aspects are not, it's really, uh, it's, it's really difficult to draw hard lines. But, um, but some things that you have to keep in mind is that you don't want to, uh, essentially, um, um, you don't want to use collective uh, judgments. You don't want to collectivize when you're thinking of people. So, so for instance, if I'm going to say uh, something like, um, well, who? first off, who's the enemy? Is the enemy anybody who works for government? Well, then you're using socialist methods to collectivize a group of people and demonize all of them based on uh, this one criteria. And so uh, guerrilla warfare should not be... Uh, done using that standard because there are all kinds of people involved who are not a n- not an actual threat, but that are just trying to make a living. They're working in some garage somewhere, tightening bolts, or they're you know shuffling mail, or they're doing something well, else. Well, actually, Ben, this is probably the philosophical elephant in the room because <laughs> what, what what it comes down to is this: I happen to think that voting is a form of violence. 
Yeah, I've discussed that on on Michael Dean's show, and uh, I think I think you happen to agree with me. Yes, for the most part on that, because when for those members of your audience who who haven't either listened to that show or whatever, briefly, what it means is that when you pull that lever, you are legitimizing the use of a proxy to go into your neighbor's home and not inform them, but direct them how their time, resources, and wealth will be used, whether they agree with it or not. That's what you're doing every time you pull that lever. So if voting is violence, what that means is it begs the question, can I shoot people who vote? And is that a violation of the NAP? In other words, can I shoot the mailman who works for the U.S. Postal Service? Can I shoot that Homeland Security clerk who isn't doing that? Now, we're not going to answer this question on your show. But what you'll find, for instance, is that when you – I'm a student of the, of, the, uh, of the Irish Rebellion for the last 800 years, especially Michael Collins and the IRB and the IRA, the Irish Republican Brotherhood morphing into the Irish Republican Army and everything else that came off after 1922 when you had the second phase of that conflict take off to try to liberate Northern Ireland. Michael Collins on Bloody Sunday, I think it was November 22nd and I can find out, used his squad – to quite literally murder in cold blood all members of the castle who were stationed in Dublin and they were a paramilitary super detective force that the United Kingdom under, under Churchill's auspices, by the way, sent over there to get into the IRA and eliminate them as a threat to the UK. That was cold blooded murder. Did that violate the NAP? Did that violate the zero aggression principle? I, you know, it's a rhetorical question, and, and I think it demands a whole lot of examination because our options are running out in America as far as our ability to peacefully solve this constant war that is waged against us as individual tax cattle here in this tax jurisdiction. I have uh, three thoughts on that. Um, the first one in the specific thing in Ireland I would not have called that a violation of the zero aggression principle. I would have called that self-defense and not a violation. And and without going in, you know, completely breaking it down, um, the second thought on that was um, the other thing that I was thinking about on this is what you said earlier about the little girl in the flower garden. Um, I think, you know, on, on a strictly property rights, the little girl in your flower garden is violating your property rights and, you know, you might be able to argue that technically you can shoot her, but it certainly wouldn't be moral to do that. It was, it would certainly, um, I don't know of any community standard that would accept that as, as acceptable behavior based on just she was in your garden, therefore you. And I suspect that if you did that, not only would I shun you, but in the name of, uh, Geld mm-hmm. and, and blood vengeance and such. You might even let her I, dad I may shoot provide me. material experience. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, and, and whatever support was needed to, because, you know, if you listen to the status and the collectivists, we're nothing but cold bloodish, cold blooded, selfish, gun toting creatures who want nothing more than survival of the fittest. Right. And a society that, that is, that is rife with violence and all the rest. Little do they know that they've looked in the mirror and they're describing themselves. Yeah. But, in the dystopic vision that you and I have, there are going to be mistakes made. There are going to be errors made. Oh, sure. People are going yeah. to fail. People are, are going to – but for the most part, 
at last people will be able to use their own moral compass to establish what's best for them. Now, let's go back to this example of, of the girl in the garden. And all this is speculative. Before I pull the trigger, I have to ask myself, number one, is has a crime been committed? And who's the victim here? Mm-hmm. Let's say she ate one of my tomatoes. Can I grow more? Is it worth her life? I have to balance this out. I have to say, is it worth snuffing her out? And of course, all the stuff from a self-interest perspective, all the stuff that would set and train, all the deleterious circumstances in my life, I'd be shunned by my fellow vill- villagers. Her family would probably not take too kindly to that. Mm-hmm. It would probably est- you know, establish some kind of uh, feud that could last generations, that could affect not only myself for my behavior at the time, The best thing that we do as abolitionists is that you and I both know that altruism is among the worst traits that any human being can have because it comes with this presumption that you and I know what's best for everybody else, whether they like it or not, and we'll free the starch out of them if they need it. And and because we are self-interested individuals, we tend to take an intermediate and long-term view and say, you know, if I do this thing right now, what 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 is going to be the second and third order effects of my behavior right now? Mm-hmm. As individuals, we tend to do that better than collective groupings do, as is evidenced by what the American government does, both domestically and overseas. If Afghanistan and Iraq stand for one thing, it shows you what unintended consequences can birth. Yeah, It shows you just how addled and, and rife with strategic deficit disorder – the entire military industrial complex in the West is and how they just they, they, they seem to, to shamble about almost like a, a pinball machine where you'd think that they were they were and, and this is no offense to people with Down syndrome, but you would swear cognitively speaking they had that to a certain extent. Yeah, and this uh, brings me back to my uh, third thought in that, um, and that is, uh, of course, the the thing that keeps you from doing this horrible thing and killing the little girl for being in in your rose garden or your tomato garden is the same thing that I think draws the line that we were talking about before as far as um, um, when you take these actions and to whom uh, these actions are pointed um, and that would be wisdom you have to you have to introduce with in order for the non aggression principle or the zero aggression principle to work. It has to walk hand in hand with wisdom. It can't be something where you have chiseled laws into stone and then you force those upon everybody else all the time under every circumstance. You have to have wisdom to uh, blend in to make these decisions. So if we're talking about the guys in Ireland and they've got a essentially a crew of killers that have come into their country and and they're they're intent and purpose in being there and their profession already prove that they have the capability and they're going to do it. They're going to kill some Irish person. That's why they're there. And so uh, was it Michael Collins? Is that who you said? It was. It was Michael Collins' squad that did that. Yeah. So he goes in and he does what he did. And I would call that entirely morally justified. Uh, Where the, the line is drawn is that you have to ask yourself, okay, is this wise? Because under some circumstances, for him to do that, it would be the wise thing to do. In other circumstances, it might not be the, the wise thing to do. So so when you balance it out as to whether it fits the zero aggression principle, and the same thing with the little girl, you ask yourself, now what's the wise thing to do here? 
and and when you get into these arguments, you know, do you kill somebody over a paperclip? Do you do this? Do you do that? You can't answer those questions without having a degree of wisdom uh, as part of the solution. And I think that's where a lot of these lifeboat scenarios get uh, flipped on their side because you try to force the situation out in a, you know, verbally in a discussion without allowing the possibility that, yeah, but there can be Especially if you philosophically harness that wisdom to context. And I think that's what you're teasing at yeah. with what you just said. Is, is that context. And, 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 you know, for those of us who come from the university of the intuitively obvious, all life is context. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's what we do on a daily basis. And it brings up an even stickier point for our Christian friends in the audience. And that's this. There's a whole lot of Christian Zionists out there. And I've been watching what the Israelis have been doing in Palestine. And I'm not making any excuses for Palestinian violent excesses against the Israelis and saying that's a good thing. I'm not going to do that. And right. that's maybe that's another show to do that. What they're doing is monstrous. But then we can take it closer to home. You and I happen to be pro-life. I am pro-life from conception. But I don't have – I haven't arrived at that point where I say to myself, you know, all these abortion clinics in which doctors are murdering these unborn children, when that doctor shows up for work every Monday morning – I know for a fact he's going to kill more of the unborn. So if there are Christians out there who believe that, and I don't happen to be pro-life by scripture, but by moral impetus, if they believe that and a Christian gets a sniper rifle and he takes out that abortion doctor Monday morning before he arrives at work or just as he's unlocking the door, is that an act of self-defense? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah, and I and I think wisdom is the balance there again. You know, uh, thinking of the folks in New Hampshire, and I'm not, you know, saying any specific uh, circumstance or whatever, but but let's say you know that actually happened. But let's say the folks in New Hampshire get to the point of where, um, you know, you're pulled over on some desolate highway way out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and and you and the cop is not aggressing on you at this moment it's just going through the processes but you know this cop is an aggressor you know he's a bad cop you know he's a dirty cop you know what he does for a living and then it's exactly the same as that abortion clinic doctor that you were just referring to you're way out there you're miles away from anybody nobody's going to be coming down this road and the thought comes into your mind ah but now i can get away with it well to a certain extent yes but there's a wider implication in doing that if in today's world, with the way everything exists today, in the direction that we're moving today, uh, and the and the amount of, uh, if I can use this word, in the amount of converts that we have to our way of thinking, and the the way that our enemy controls and manipulates the media, if a random basis here and there, cops just start showing up dead on the highways, the backlash to that is probably going to be far worse than what it's worth today. At some point, that may change. If, like with Michael Collins, at some point, had he done that, it would have caused a wave of murderers to roll into Ireland that's that's unimaginable. It would be, um, uh, oh boy, what's that guy's name back in the 1600s that ravished England and uh, threw out the king? 
guy that. Oh, the, uh, I know who you're talking about. The Roundheads. Yes, Cromwell. Yes. Cromwell. Cromwell. Yeah. Yes. Um, what Cromwell did to Ireland would be similar to what could have happened to Ireland had. Uh, had the timing been wrong on that, it could have, instead of causing the repercussions that it caused, it could have, at a different time in a different setting, doing exactly the same thing could have caused a, a worse invasion of Ireland than they were facing. But so you have to pick your battles. You have to think about what am I going to do? You know, is uh, to use somebody else's statement about uh, shooting a mailman. Is that how's that going to today in the world we live in with the media controlled the way it is and with nobody and I shouldn't say nobody with the vast majority of people not understanding that the post office gets its money by robbing us without everybody understanding that shooting that post office worker or shooting the little girl in the garden is contrary to to wisdom. It's going in the wrong direction in today's world. It's not the move. Now, now I, I, I agree with that, but I have to say this with, with your earlier statement concerning cockroaches is that it astonishes me the kind of uh, – it's, it's almost a careless bravado with cops across the nation, all 19,000 departments, million badge thugs who are currently in the employ from the local to the federal level. I don't think that they have any idea of what's going to happen once the genie is out of the bottle – and these atomistic acts of revenge against the injustice that they have served for decades against populations in America, whether they're rural, urban, black, white, yellow, whatever the case may be. I don't think they understand the kind of pressure that is building up under them, the kind of critical mass that is forming that once that cork is off the bottle to start taking the vengeance against these perceived wrongs, I don't think the cops have a have a, a vision of what they're in store for. I would definitely agree with that. Um, here's just a little hint of uh, uh, the things that are rolling through my mind. Are you familiar with what happened with Louis Free here uh, not too long ago, or even who Louis Free is? I do not. Uh, Louis Free was a uh, Bush one appointee to a bunch of uh, powerful positions. And then Clinton came in. Oh, was he the FBI director? Or he something he like was director of the FBI yes, through yes. the Ruby Ridge and yeah, through the yeah. uh, Waco incident. And he um, he has made a lot of enemies during his lifetime. There are people who deeply hate Louis Free. Now, he was driving down the road in Vermont, uh, I think about two weeks ago, maybe a little less than that. And... Um, he was driving along, and, and we know from witnesses that he had he was on a uh, two and three lane road. You know, it was a it was a pretty good yeah. highway. I've driven on the road that he that he was yeah. driving on. I may have even dri- driven on the section of the road that he's driving, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, so he's driving along. It's a good road. It's the middle of the day. The weather is clear. There's no there's no outside circumstances that we know of, and he was crossing over the yellow line, according to witnesses, somewhat sumped over in the seat. And um, and ran a couple people, almost ran a couple people off the road, and I think he did run one person off the road or forced them to stop or something. And then uh, just a little ways down the road from that, he ran off the road at full speed, highway speed, rammed a tree, destroyed his SUV that he was driving, and uh, and hurt himself pretty badly. Now, um, there's some odd circumstances involving this. First off, 
one of the people that he ran off the road turned around and didn't necessarily chase him, but kind of followed down and saw that he had wrecked. And so there's a witness of the moments after the wreck. And it just so happened that uh, that Louis Free, the former uh, head of the, of the FBI, one of the first people to the accident was an off-duty FBI agent before the police got there. Then the police showed up, and of course, then they got an ambulance, and they got him to one of the top hospitals in the area, which happens to be over in New Hampshire. They got him over to the hospital as quickly as possible, and they kept him under armed guard, uh, 24-7 under armed guard. Now, uh, one of the uh, um, Vermont newspapers asked the uh, the police, you know, of course, had to make a statement. This is what happened. And they said, uh, for some reason, we're not sure he ran off the road, and we'll question it. We'll find out later, and, and we'll fill things in as we know. So the newspaper asked, uh, was there drugs or alcohol involved? And the police spokesman, or I think sheriff's department spokesman, said, uh, we do not suspect that drugs and alcohol were involved, were an issue. And the newspaper pressed it and said, was he tested for drugs and alcohol? And the uh, the uh, spokesman said he was not tested for drugs and alcohol because we did not suspect drugs and alcohol. Now, that's some really typical circular thinking right there. <laughs> well, it's the same as a, a canine dog was um, killed. Well, not killed. It expired in the back of a patrol car because it was left there overnight. But was the officer charged for that? <sighs> of course he wasn't because it was an accident. Right. But and you, you know what the, the the story you're illustrating with free goes across the board. They have a license to kill, and they have a license to to be at you know relieved of any responsibility and accountability whatsoever for any evil they commit, any of it. Yeah, and and then there was another question that struck me odd, and it makes me want to actually contact the reporter who asked this question because this is this is a really good question. The reporter asked, had the vehicle or the vehicle's computer been tampered with? Now, that tells me that maybe they know something about Michael Hastings. Maybe the reporter yeah. knows something yeah. about Michael Hastings. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the, uh, the official spokesman's response was, we do not suspect that the uh, computer or the vehicle had been tampered with. Well, <laughs> did you check? No, we didn't check because we don't suspect it was tampered with. Now, this, and they're not they're they're not going to ask the necessary questions. No, they're, they're no. not going to. You no. know, all I think a lot of people in your audience, including myself, have read unintended consequences, and they speak to this. And if mm -hmm. Michael Collins were alive today, I'm certain he would uh he would have his calm damaged to a large extent in America, and b would be quite mischievous. <laughs> now, considering the people who Louis Free has crossed over the course of his career. I was thinking about this, and I, I thought, who would, you know, it's the old question, who would benefit the most from this person's death? Koi Bono. Yeah. And yeah. so I think about it, and I think, well, who would want him dead? Well, there are militia types that would literally take pliers and pull the teeth out of their own head to get the opportunity to kill uh, Louis Free. They, some of them hate him that bad. There are people, the far right wing, there are, you know, um, what are they called? Separatists, not separatists, uh, uh, you know, racial extremists of different types sure. th that would just love to kill uh, Louis Free. Uh, sure. I, and I, I think that he's 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 the first of a long list. Yeah. 
And there are convicted criminals who have rotted for years and years in prisons and have sat there and thought nothing but that man's name over and over and over. So there's right. plenty of people that would just love to kill uh, this this uh, cockroach of all cockroaches. <laughs> That's right. But there are... Hey, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, I, I, I wanted to make sure that because we're uh, we're sort of running out of time at the at the podcast link that you're accustomed to. I wish this could be hours long, but it can't. We can't do the Dan Carlin thing where he'll speak for seven hours <laughs> in an individual podcast. Right. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that we also covered some other aspects of the self defense thing from an Ancapistan perspective, and that's oh. how many times have you heard the noise where they say, well. Non-state actors can't fight against very large, sophisticated, technologically uh, higher-powered <laughs> militaries who have navies and armies and artillery and air superiority, maybe even air supremacy, uh, all the sophisticated training that goes into that. Exhibit A is Iraq and Afghanistan. For over a trillion dollars plus, and no one will get a, give us the proper accounting, Ben, in a dozen-plus years in Iraq, what happened to this – this fabled Iraqi army that was that was created out of the ashes of Saddam Hussein's former Republican Guard when this non-state actor army, IS, they don't refer to themselves as ISIL or ISIS anymore, IS, which is a light infantry-born, vehicle-born force with very few people in it that that suffers its logistics on the move, steals cash when it can find it, takes these vast swaths of territory, flies its black flag, and is fairly successful. Why is it that there are large swaths of Afghanistan, which is an imaginary country, that aren't controlled after a dozen years and trillions of dollars spent to control them, and they're manned by riflemen with Enfields and AK-47s? The only reason I bring that up is because the usual suspect in the collectivist milieu say, well, secession will never work and armed secession will never work because you simply can't fight against tanks. Well, you know what? If you don't think you can fight against tanks, no one's paying attention to the news coming out of Syria, are they? Yeah, you, you mentioned a second ago uh, this boiling point and, you know, we were talking about Ferguson and it's really – let me throw this in real quick. Sure. Uh, a very similar situation took place in Ohio where a guy – was a, a, a young black man was in a, a Walmart and he picked up a, a product that Walmart sells. He picked up the product off the shelf and the product was something that looks like a gun. You know, it was basically an airsoft gun. Yeah, exactly. And so he picked up this thing that looks like a gun and looks maybe scary, but it's literally a product off the shelf of the Walmart that he was in and he was walking with it. And that resulted in cops shooting him down within seconds of them laying their eyes on him. Literally, you know, it, 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 they haven't released the tape yet, and, and that's one of the calls for that to happen. We know every Walmart you've ever been in, you've looked around at the ceiling and seen all the cameras that are in there. Oh, yeah. So we yeah. know there's tapes of this, and then they could clear the whole thing up just by releasing the tapes. But, well, it's the same thing in 2010 with, with uh, in Las Vegas with the Costco murder yes, exactly, of that young exactly. man. So, yeah. But now look at the different community reaction to these two things. In Ohio, there are literally people holding up signs in support of the cop, which just blows my mind. 
Yes. And in Ferguson, it was on the verge of of going the way of the uh, you know the Los Angeles riots after the Rodney King thing. It was right on the verge of going in that direction. And the difference in this is that boiling that you were talking about. Ferguson is in an area where that's that the cop is, the cop roach mentality that you talk about has completely gone viral and it has completely infected the the local uh the local monsters and the then the residents there have just had enough they're right on the verge of the whole thing turning nasty and, it's a culminating point yeah and I, and I can tell you I can actually speak to that spot in Ohio because I've shopped in that Walmart and I've I my daughter lives just a few minutes from that Walmart so I It's I'm, Beaver Creek. Yeah, it's Beaver Creek yeah. and I know that area very very well. Uh, I've gone to concerts that are literally at the place that's like right across right across the freeway from that Walmart. I've gone to concerts at that location and and coming and coming out of there then go over and grab lunch at the fast food that's across the street from the Walmart. Yeah, so I yeah. know this area really well. If that incident had taken place at a liquor store downtown Dayton, downtown Dayton would be on fire because what's going on in downtown Dayton is exactly the same, not as Ferguson, because Ferguson is not as bad as St. Louis. A lot of people are are equating Ferguson with St. Louis. Well, Ferguson, the situation there is bad, but if you move over just a few blocks into St. Louis proper, things are really bad. And and the police really have taken over, and it and it's it really looks scary. Look, they, it, to me, when I look at these things, it's almost like the Warsaw Ghetto. Yeah, I I, I think of Mordecai and Neilewitz, and uh, and what he your audience. I'm not going to bore the audience with the story. Look up Mordecai and Neilewitz, and you can find out what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto. But very much what is happening, especially you know, blacks as a community, whether they are conservative, collectivist, whatever, or or abolitionists, whatever the the case may be. You do not want to be DWB in America driving while black. You do not want to be walking while black. You don't, their experience, they talk about, well, you, you just don't understand because you've never been in our skin. I believe it when it comes to cops. Yeah. I, I have a hard time grokking what it would be like to be a black man in America today. I'm a white guy just like you, Ben. I have been hassled by the cops, but I know because of the pigmentation of my skin, I don't get hassled as much. And that's an observable fact, but uh, cops just, they, they, they make my blood pressure boil. They make my head explode with their behavior and such. But imagine you harness the philosophical objection you and I have to the police state to actually living in these occupied ghettos, quite literally ghettos in the variant that, that the media doesn't suggest today, but you and I are familiar with, with Jewish ghettos and Jewish quarters in Nazi Germany or in even Mussolini's Italy during the conflict. Yeah. These were people who were segregated into these places, and they were treated like garbage and second-class citizens. The, the difference here being that it was really only one generation that they got away with that in, in with Warsaw and, and in Italy, where this has been going on for 150 years here in the United States. And so you have a generational manipulation of people. I look at the same thing on the Indian reserva- reservations. Absolutely. You have a, you have generations and generations of people who have been taught to behave a certain way and have been punished for doing good and have been rewarded for doing bad. Families that have been divided and generations and generations raised in these broken families. And uh, you've got not just a boiling kettle, 
but you've got a uh, you've got a kettle full of gasoline that's boiling, and and these cops literally are up over that vapor trying their best to strike an arc. Well, they're, they're you know what they're doing? They're swimming in a pool full of gasoline in a dark room, lighting their way with lit matches held above them. They really are. That that's exactly what they're doing. I remember the, the, this is a, a great anecdote concerning Aboriginal uh, reservations. I watched this show by Sp- Morgan Spurlock, who's a collectivist apologist. He did um, Super Size Me, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he did a show where he would take a job in various places around the around the uh, United States. One of them took was to be a tire guy on an Aboriginal reservation. So he goes there and he's making $3 an hour because they have an exception to the minimum wage rule. Mm-hmm. And I know that we don't have time to talk right, about right, minimum wage right. on this, this show, but, but what, what struck me was this. He's making three bucks an hour doing this and he's out with friends that he met at the tire shop that evening drinking. Drinking is not allowed for some reason or they violated some kind of law. What does the tribal cop drive up in? He drives up in a $60,000 SUV, probably kitted out with the equal amount of money and communications equipment, antennae, weapons, you, you name all the crap mm-hmm. that they shove into these, these suppression machines. Yeah. He steps out, you know, he's all kitted out himself. He's got the expensive body armor. He's got all that stuff. And I thought to myself, what, what, why do they tolerate such moral inequity, which is precisely what that is? They're making three bucks an hour at a tire shop, and this guy is driving around in something that's five years worth of one of these guys' wages. It, yeah. it, it, it just it just strikes me as wrong at so many levels. And of course, it, you know the metadata tells us that the police state is very rich, as we saw with the 10, 1033 and ten twenty two Pentagon programs in provisioning them with military vehicles and such. You know Ferguson. Could have been defused, but I'm telling you, they they almost lit the fuse yeah. with their militaristic Israeli-style occupation nonsense that they adopted when they were there, and and uh, pointing guns in the face of journalists and threatening to kill them and such. And you think to yourself, really, really? In the current state of affairs, they could not get away with that, uh, or what they did uh, in Watertown outside Boston. They couldn't get away with that, let's say, in, uh, oh, I don't know, we'll pick on Casper, Wyoming, uh, because there's too many people that could be sitting in an attic looking through an, you know, a, a vent in an attic. <laughs> you know, and they've all been hunting. Yeah. And their you, entire lives. You see this row of targets coming down your street. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just think about it. You, we don't have to be real specific because people who know what we're talking about know what we're talking about. That will happen in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, but I can guarantee you it's not going to happen in uh, uh, Rollo, Missouri. It's not going to happen. I can guarantee it. Uh, and I'm not in that's not where I'm at. I'm not saying that. I don't yeah, even yeah. know anybody in that town. I just look on a map and see it, and I've driven through it. But it's not going to happen there. And the problem is – that the people doing this, the the cockroach, the cockroaches and their owners, their opulent operators, um, they don't realize that what they can get away with in Watertown uh, is not going to happen when you take it outside of there. It's not going to. It work. It might work in Ferguson temporarily, but it you know thirty miles down the road, it, well, you're going to have a it, different response altogether. It is interesting because when you look at the Dorner case in California, you consider. Here's one former cop with very extraordinarily limited training mm-hmm. who really took the entire state of California law enforcement apparatus, and that is a big pig, pun intended, 
with with, uh, with tens of thousands of enforcers in that state, they were horrified. I mean, they had armed guards at chiefs and captains' houses 24-7 while Dorner was, was flitting about. And, and then finally, what they do with Dorner is apparently, without getting positive identification, they flame the cabin that he's in, not knowing if he had a hostage or if he had a friend with more, if he had an innocent, you know, occupant of that cabinet, they just fired it up. And you can see from the release tapes of the conversations they were having, that was their intention. They were never going to bring Dorner home alive to face justice because he had crossed the thin black and blue line and done the wrong thing. But here's the thought experiment. What's going to happen if every state faces contemporaneously at the same time, a hundred Dorners? Yeah. And especially Right now, we hear all this noise, especially Alex Jones will capitalize on this. All these veterans are coming back, and they're trying to make it so that veterans can own firearms, or if you've got PTSD, you're going to be limited. There's a whole lot of counterinsurgency, and I would say general purpose force combat experience, tens of thousands of years of it invested in all of these young men Mm -hmm. who are coming back. These guys are uh, staying in the Army, getting out becoming part of the workforce, whatever the case may be. They've got very interesting skill sets, much as Liam Neeson told us in both movies, Taken and Taken 2. They've got very interesting skill sets. And the cops, despite dressing up for the ball, they don't have the training, they don't have the fortitude, and they don't have the will to do what it takes to actually engage in the combat they so wish they're in. Because I do think that once they're faced with a fourth-generation conflict, as it were, in which the occupiers are going to be facing a resilient, adaptive, and deadly combat adversary, things are going to be completely different. You know, there's a uh, there's a video uh, that was done by one of the cop block guys. Uh, I think he was like from up in Oregon or Washington, somewhere up there. That, but he went down to Ferguson and and did some videotaping. And if I can find it, I'll link to it in today's show notes. But uh, uh, he was there in Ferguson, and there's this one cop that is essentially pointing an assault rifle, at, at, at a combat rifle, at all these people who are not at all being violent at the moment. And and the uh, the cop block guy does a really good job of showing the cop's face and showing his reaction and showing what the cop is going through and then trying to point out to other cops that that guy needs help. He is terrified right now, and he's got a rifle pointed at people's faces, and he's terrified. And I saw this with Ferguson, and I saw this with Watertown. What I was seeing with the cops is that they were a and you've talked about this a bit and and I'm I'm overweight but I can that kind of gives me the right to to say this out in the in the open what you typically see with cops is they are way overweight they are extremely undertrained and in any kind of an emergency situation their first response is extreme fear and I saw it in the Watertown videos and pictures and you know, I saw it in the in the Ferguson videos those cops are terrified because much like you just said, as much as in, you know, as much as they sit at home and fantasize about how great they are and what warriors they are, they know deep in their hearts that they, uh, that they are almost powerless in those situations. And you know, it's, it, it's funny, Ben, when you bring up them being overweight, they, they estimate that over 80% of them are overweight. And one of the reasons that they'll cite is they say the stress of the job causes them to be that way. And I ask myself, 
well, what about combat soldiers? How come they're not all dirigibles? It's because they have discipline and they know that their pie hole has a limited intake capability. Yeah, and they know that their life depends on them. On fitness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and for cockroaches, you know, they, they take the assumption. You know, they've got all this this philosophical legal top cover for the bad stuff they do on a daily basis, and they know it. I think the message is pretty clear that if you're a cop because of qualified immunity, officer safety standards, and police unions, you will get away with anything, and your chief will justify anything that you do no matter what. Yeah. I I, I think the evidence is just clear about that. You know, there's this guy who runs Fatal Encounters who's a friend of mine, Brian Burkhart, and I did an interview with him on my site. You realize, Ben, and this is probably old news to you, there is no federal database for police killing civilians in the U.S. Yeah. They don't track it. Yeah. And you and I both know the U.S. tracks the most banal, stupid stuff. Yeah. So – you know, should we? Uh, I know we're we're almost out of time here, Ben. Should we close this up with a redemption of the third act? Should we? Should we try to summarize? And you can edit this out, of course. <laughs> should we? Should we? Should we try to summarize uh, why self defense isn't good? I mean, is good. Um, yeah, we should. Before we do that, let me throw out a, uh, a, celebratory, a celebratory day that we should all recognize, and that is Saturday, September twentieth. Uh, Saturday, September September twentieth, is Give a Cop a Donut Day, and I <laughs> I brought this up at your when you were talking at, at uh, Pork Fest, and one of the active things that we can do is help these poor deranged people by providing them, you know, be nice to your local cop, take him a dozen donuts and a bucket of high fructose corn syrup to wash it down with, and a big old straw. <laughs> Take it, I love it. Take him a bucket of corn syrup and a straw and a dozen donuts. Shake his hand. Tell him you appreciate his service and you just want to give him a, a, a gift to show how, how much dozen? you love him. Would that be permitted? A dozen? A dozen, sure. Okay, and then maybe a dozen. And then I could take a um, a Dasani bottle and just fill it with corn syrup. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And I could say, oh, and by the way, this is an octane booster, and I urge you to put it in your patrol car. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, uh, real quick, that touches on something that we could also spend an entire thing on. I've said this before, uh, that uh, police car sitting beside, you know, beside the, the street unoccupied, no cameras watching what's going on, it's just sitting there. That, uh, according to Lockean principles and according to... Uh, uh, according to the zero aggression principle and our understanding of property rights, that is uh, unowned material. That is unowned property that is available for homesteading. So I, <laughs> you know, but we have to use wisdom. Wisdom is the the wisdom controlling factor. Yeah, and so you know, if you can homestead, say the side window of that police car, and then it's yours to do whatever you want with it, within the realm of reason and uh, and. Uh, wisdom. So you you know you don't want to you don't want to uh, readjust the glass on the on the passenger side of that police car if if you're going to have repercussions. Don't don't uh, don't request the song if you can't pay the piper. That's right. That's right. So how I, how, how close to re- redemption in the third act is that? I think I think that's terrific redemption, especially if maybe even slices of bacon are. Uh, put alongside the windshield wipers to make the lubricity and behavior of the wipers in a rainstorm even better. 
you know, I've told this story so many times, people probably get tired of hearing it. But one time uh, the police, and I was like uh, 16, 17, something like that. So it was a juvenile prank on my part. But uh, one time I, I grabbed the, the heavy uh, wireman's, uh, lineman's wire cutters out of my toolbox in the middle of the night and just went down to the local police station and snapped off all the antennas off their cars, which... <laughs> Back in the 70s, that pretty much disabled a police car back then. They, you know, they relied on their half a dozen antennas for everything back in those days. Yeah. Well, they still do. Yeah. Communications is the key to their thug scrums. Uh, well, do we want to touch anything else? We've, uh, we've really twisted our time here out of, out of proportion. Don't we always do that, Ben? <laughs> here's, a, here's what I wanted to leave your audience with because I really believe in Michael, De- Michael Dean's, um, Redemption Third Act, I, th- I think it, it, it really pays dividends for us in the freedom community, is that there were, during the war to save Joseph Stalin, there were a number of very heroic, morally courageous people who stood up and said, I ain't fighting and I'm not going to man an ambulance because I'm not going to participate in this. Where they went was they became smoke jumpers in Montana, Idaho, and those northern states during the conflict. So what that proves out is that these people aren't cowards. No, I, 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 as a matter of fact, I would say that they're far from being cowards. They had physical courage and they had moral courage, which is a, uh, a junction and a hybrid that is greatly lacking in society today. I have the greatest respect for the plain people known as the Amish, for the Mennonites, for the Quakers, especially the bad Quaker and, and, and all of their moral precepts that guide what they do on a daily basis and throughout their lives. But if you do based on pacifism, pacifism against a determined foe will lead to a self-extinction event. Right. In the end, that, that's what it does. Self-defense, as we said in the first few minutes of the program, is not a right granted by the government. It's not a, a, a fancy term that you find in the textbooks or, or philosophical tomes. Self-defense is an inalienable right. And inalienable means whether you believe in a priori, accounting sense, or you believe in some kind of uh, special fire or a creation fire that you were invested with. Whatever the origin story is that you think you have as a person for your ability to defend yourself, that can't be impugned by anybody and don't let them fool you. Yeah, I think property is not property without defense. And Butler Schaefer would tell you that private property is the answer to all of society's problems in a stateless society. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, thanks a ton for coming on the show with me. And Did, uh, did look, we go way over, Ben? Well, we went a bit over, but that's, <laughs> okay. that's okay. I've, I've kind of uh, – I've sort of cut ties with a lot of limitations that I had in the past on sticking with an hour, so uh, so I'm okay Good. with that. Well, Ben, it is always an honor. Thanks for uh, for entertaining my bloviations, and, and I always learn stuff when I come on the show. It was a pleasure again, and I hope to get an invitation in the future. It's always a standing invitation, and uh, Bill Bupert, I'm, I am honored to say that Bill Bupert is my friend and my colleague, and, you know, I, would, I started to say co-worker, but I would rather say um, fellow fighter. And uh, well, the government would call us co-conspirators. Co-conspirators. Yes, yeah. I will so, admit to that. And I, I'm from zerogov.com. I have a book on Amazon called Zero Gov: Limited Government Unicorns and Other Mythological Creatures. 
And I'm on the speaking circuit. If you go to media and interview, media and interviews tab on my site, you can find, uh, other interviews and speaking engagements that I've had to include every podcast I've done with Ben. And you can hear both Bill and, uh, me, myself on the Freedom Fiends, uh, which is a nightly radio show. Uh, you can find that at the GCN uh, radio network and also we're on the weekends during the daytime and you, and we have shows on the Freedom Fiends and you can find that at freedomfiends.com. So that gives them a shout out. Bill, thanks a ton for coming on the show with me. Hey, it's always an honor, Ben. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much.